0: Support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new rate shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, rate shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, December 20th, and we're discussing energy. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How are you doing, Jason?
1: I'm good. It's been a a little while since I was on. I've crossed multiple countries since since last time we chatted.
0: Yeah, across multiple countries, you know, uh, our two college football uh, loyalties had had a uh, had an epic SEC championship game uh, in Atlanta. Still wearing a red
1: shirt, I want to point that out. This is not this is not a crimson shirt. This is a Georgia red shirt. So,
0: hey, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, no judgment here. Uh, Yeah, who are you going to be rooting for here in the college football playoff coming up uh, in the new year?
1: So I, I I Alabama looks incredible. I mean they really do. I think I think having uh, like 3 weeks off is the best thing that could happen for them to get to a healthy, get that knee finally at least back to you know, 80%. Uh, he's going to be tough. Um, I think I think Clemson's going to absolutely just just destroy Notre Dame. Um, I think we're going to get another and I'm 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 sure that the college football playoff people don't like the idea of you know, having 3.0 Clemson, Alabama, but I think that's going to be the final. And um, I think it's going to be a really good final. I think Clemson's probably a lot. I think the difference between Clemson and Alabama, I think it's a lot closer than, than, than most people are acknowledging at this point. But uh, we'll see. What about you? I, I'm pretty sure I know who you're picking.
0: Here. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell you who I'm rooting for is Alabama. You know, it's, I mean, this team, I mean, the probably the best quarterback that's ever been there in the history of the university with Tua uh, and then. You know, I mean, the the team is just so deep. I will say, you know, Clemson is definitely a team to watch out for. You know, uh, their quarterback uh, has really done well in his freshman year. And then that defensive line is really, I mean, the heart of the team. I mean, most of their guys could have gone to the NFL last year, could have been first round picks, all came back very similar to Georgia last year, bringing back a lot of those seniors who really could have left that junior year. Um, So it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it.
1: Well, and that's, I think that, that you you hit a key thing there with Clemson with that. They're, you know, really their entire front seven, but especially their down linemen are so good. They're so disruptive. They're, they're going to be able to, to control the run game pretty well. And if they can disrupt Tua and they can contain, because I think Georgia did a really good job with that. But he, he wasn't healthy, right? I think you have to acknowledge that. Yep. Um, but nobody really slowed Tua down as much as, as Georgia did. And Clemson has a much better. Front, their you know their down linemen are, like I said, these are you know these are you know you got three or four guys there that could be playing on Sundays now. Um, I think that's going to be the difference in the game. I really do. So yeah, should we talk about investing too? Should we? Should we yeah, let's let's do let's,
0: let's 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 do that. Uh, you know, for, for our listener aren't college football fans? Sorry about that. Got it. Got to uh, you know uh, scratch that itch every once in a while. And I've got Jason Absolutely. on the show. Um but yeah we've got a packed show today Jason. Uh, we're going to lay out everything investors need to know about jumping into solar investing all the way you know from making the panels uh, to to uh, the kind of uh, utility uh, providers of energy. But first, let's catch up on a little bit of news out of the oil markets we've had in the past couple of weeks. Um, so probably the most significant news has come out of OPEC, or really OPEC Plus. On December seventh, OPEC and its partners. When you say OPEC Plus, you're really talking about o, uh, OPEC Plus Russia and a few others. A recent agreement to cut oil by 1.2 million barrels per day, which was was a larger figure. Um, than uh than had been anticipated and and it's in the hopes um, that we'll stabilize oil prices we're down now about 35 percent off our four-year highs we saw back in October uh, what are your thoughts about this cut and what it's going to do to the energy markets particularly oil uh, over the next year or so
1: you know I think it's just a stopgap move um I don't I think even the the, the folks at OPEC uh, and and out of Russia who's it's funny Russia has more More influence over OPEC, I think, um, than probably half of OPEC's own members do, um, which is which is kind of interesting and strange. Um, But yeah, I think it's a stopgap move. I don't I don't think, and I think they would would tell you the same thing. But it's remarkable. Oil oil is it's it's down by basically a third since October first, right? I mean, it's a massive massive drop in a pretty short period of short period of time. Um, I think it is going to kind of provide some stability, especially considering that probably I think the biggest source of new production has been the us, right? The Permian Basin has just been pouring new oil out um, at like a you know a million barrels um, average you know annual growth for like two or three years now. but we're at pipeline capacity in that region, and that's going to carry out until you know late in the second quarter or early or late in the third quarter early in the fourth quarter of next year before we start seeing pipelines coming on to start you know bringing more of that oil out. So I think this is going to give the market some of the stability that it needs to see over the next 6 to 9 months but there's a caveat. And that caveat is global demand, right? Um, you know between the fears of a trade war with China and the US potentially you know stalling global economic growth, you know if if that weighs on you know oil demand um, if, if the demand part of the of the of the equation changes quickly, you know, the market could get another shock. Um, but if you were to, to hold a gun to my head, um, I'd say a year from now, oil's probably going to be where it is now or maybe a little higher. It's going to move a lot <laughs> in between now and then. Um, but I, I we'll, we'll see what happens. What do you think?
0: yeah as always with these global commodity markets it's always difficult to predict what's what's going to happen you know we also had some some kind of unpredictable uh, uh developments throughout this year so we had I believe it was in Libya where we had had some uh, kind of militias shutting down some some wells there obviously Venezuela's collapse has continued to play out so it's hard to predict those right. sorts of things you know yep. a- as more pipeline capacity does come on in the Permian, I think we're probably going to get more supply coming out of there and as you mentioned, if we see a little bit of a of a turn down in oil demand, that that really could lead to an oversupply problem. The EIA has said that they they don't expect shale production to slow, and that we may see some oversupply going into 2019, barring as I mentioned some unplanned outages like we might see out of you know like I mentioned in Libya or, or Venezuela. So I think it, it, it's difficult to predict, but I, I I think I probably agree with most most of what you said there. Um, let's go to this other story out of OPEC. You talked about. Maybe Russia having having more control over over what's going on with that cartel than than even some of the members, and there has been some discontent among membership in OPEC. <laughs> uh, Qatar, uh, most notably, you can call it OPEXIT, They left OPEC uh, after 57 years of membership, and their energy minister said when they left that OPEC is an organization controlled. Uh, is an organization managed by a country? In a veiled shot at the Saudis, they've really had some right. some conflict with them. Uh, they're really trying to uh, Qatar kind of wants to push harder into natural gas. What do you think about Qatar leaving OPEC? Uh, is this signs of any instability in that cartel going forward? You know, there are some other countries that have, have showed some discontent the way things are going. Venezuela, Kuwait, Nigeria, Algeria have all been countries that have mentioned having some friction uh, with with the leaders in in the cartel.
1: I'll say right out. I don't think this is this is any sign that OPEC's about to break. I don't think that's even close to happening. Um, I think you have to look at the Qatar situation, um, kind of on an island, right? There's been some serious. It's been Qatar has its own problems, and Qatar and and the Saudis have got. I mean, there's some serious some serious issues. But also, I think if you look at Qatar, you know, I don't think a lot of people really understand that you know what Qatar is really a natural gas producer, right? That's that's a that's a that's a significant part of of, of what they do, um, so I, I honestly I think it, it's going to get the benefits of 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 having you know geographically being in that same region uh, with most of OPEC um, and OPEC's actions, and it's going to have a little more freedom um, being separate separate from the uh, from the cartel, especially in terms of its. Um, it's uh, it's oil production, but again, natural gas and natural gas liquids are a bigger part of its business. I don't I don't think it's it's, eh, I think it's probably a little a little more noise than signal, uh, in terms of what it really means for OPEC.
0: Sure, Jason, and just to, to mention for our listeners, with Qatar pulling out of OPEC. You know their production is significant their oil production is significant but it's not the type of them not coming along with the cut that OPEC is doing and leaving the what the cartel is right. doing there it's not going to significantly significantly impact global demand to really really mess up the supply demand dynamics we were talking about earlier right
1: right and I think now from an investor perspective I think this is the key thing so if you think about uh, obviously from a consumer perspective how this affects our pocketbook with oil prices uh, is one thing. But as an investor, I think the big takeaway is that if you think about what has happened over the past three or four years um, across the oil and gas uh, industry, is that producers of every size, you know, the private companies, the the stocks that we invest in, have have just about if if a company has survived, you know, the past three or four years. They've done it because they've found a way to lower their production costs. You know, they, they're they're drilling cheaper, they're they're maintaining wells uh, at lower costs. They're they're finding ways to, to be more efficient with how they how much they produce, and that's the key, right? I mean, I think if you find that oil companies that are able to produce, you know, that are looking at like forty dollars for their breakeven, like I know that's a number that ConocoPhillips talks about. Um, You know, understanding how oil prices affect the economics of individual companies is really the key thing. And and invest in the if you're if you're going to invest in the sector and production, find your low cost leaders, and 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 that's where you're going to own a company that's going to be able to thrive at 50 or 60 dollar oil, and is not going to struggle if we do so oil fall back into the 40s or even lower.
0: Yeah, yeah, Jason. And then related to that too, you know, you can look at how hedged companies are to oil prices. You know, the less hedged a company is, the more upside they're going to capture when oil moves up, but also the more downside they're really going to have to absorb as prices move. So that's a thing to keep in mind about the risk reward when you're looking at these companies. Um, on the back half of the show, we're going to dive into solar and really give a full breakdown of what all you need to know about that industry. But first, a message from our sponsor. Support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. It's causing a lot of anxiety with folks. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive Rate Shield approval. They'll lock up your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect for America's largest, largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply, based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number thirty thirty. Okay, Jason. Now let's move on to our main topic, which is solar energy. You know, as I've mentioned, our, you know, a few weeks ago, I did a show with Brian Faraldi on residential solar, and we mentioned it's a that great
1: show. By the yeah, way, that was a great show.
0: Yeah, we broke down all all the things that you need to know about you know investing in solar for your home, whether it's appropriate for your home, how to take advantage of the solar investment tax credit, which. As I mentioned on that show, and I'll mention again today, since that uh, solar investment tax credit was put in place in the United States, we've seen a 59% compound annual growth rate um, in solar installation in the U.S. And There are expectations that global solar capacity will increase as much as 6,500% over the next three decades. Jason, I know you just wrote a very long uh, breakdown of what's going on in the energy industry. I will drop that uh, in our uh, podcast description for our listeners if they want to go take a look at that. Um, those growth rates are are really impressive. Uh, but when we're talking about solar, what all goes into that industry? what what are what are the steps in the supply chain uh, to kind of get those panels from manufacture to your home?
1: So it's I mean, it's a relatively complex industry, right? It's certainly an international industry, um, like a lot of other types of <clears throat> of of manufactured products. Um, a lot of its manufacturing has has shifted overseas. Uh, it is based in China and Southeast Asia. Um, <clears throat> but essentially what you have is you have the solar module um, which or the panel as is, is most people think of it. And it's made of solar cells, right? These individual cells um, that are grouped together. and you have basically two different sizes. You have the size that goes on a house or goes into a commercial installation, maybe like on a parking garage or on top of a, a Walmart or a manufacturing facility. And then you have industrial panels. Uh, for your utility uh, scale panels, which are for these giant solar farms that you might see that cover acres and acres of land that a utility company might operate or they might be buying uh, power from. So you have the companies that design the cells and then assemble them into the modules. And then you have uh, companies that do the installation on residential and commercial. So these are the companies that. Uh, they're kind of the middleman. They'll buy the, the solar panels and they'll put them on your house and they deal with all the, the, the local licensing and the local permitting and they work with your utility to tie, the, tie everything into the grid. Uh, but kind of in between, you have companies that are more specialized. Maybe they manufacture mounting hardware. To make it easier to install those panels on, on your roof, right? Uh, so it's faster for the uh, for the installers. So their labor costs go down. So they can pass the savings along to you, and they can be a little more profitable. They can do more installs in a given amount of time. Uh, then uh, the industry is also becoming smarter in terms of of getting the the most efficient production, uh, measuring it, uh, making sure that that you're getting the best production based on how the system's installed. So you're seeing a lot more of of the electronics in between the panels, which produce DC energy, which is what your car battery uses. And then there are electronics called uh, inverters that convert it to AC energy, which is the energy that your lights in your house and your your dishwasher and all of those those devices use. So it it does that conversion. Um, And you're seeing those devices get smarter and better, uh, more efficient. So more of the panel, the sunlight that hits the panel... Um, makes it all the way through back to the grid to power your house, improves the costs, makes it more cost effective. So there are a few companies interest- that are really interesting in the middle that, that that make that part. And now you have batteries, right? That's that's been one of the big problems that we'll talk about in a little bit is is making sure that solar production matches up with when the grid is able to produce and when actual consumers, energy consumers, are 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 consuming, right? So batteries are becoming a big deal, being able to store. And tap the uh, the solar energy when it's when it's most needed, um, and then on the back end, you you have even more companies involved in the in the um, kind of the utility companies of the solar business. Uh, you have what they call yield codes, which are companies that build these utility scale projects. Maybe they make an investment in in a really big one with other yield cos, and then they actually sell the power to the utility companies, or in some places directly to large industrial users. Um, on long-term contracts, and these are like really good dividend investments. So, uh, whether you're looking for growth, you're looking for a value opportunity, um, whether you're looking for a niche um, kind of special situation company, or if you're an income investor, there's something for everybody in the in this space. But it's really dynamic. There's still a ton of consolidation coming on. It's heavily cyclical. You know, you can see demand go up and down in uh, 30 or 40 percent demand swings over you know a year or two um, even though we're talking six you know 6 thousand percent growth over the next 30 years there are really big cyclical swings that can happen um, from from one year to the next that have significantly impacted uh, solar investors that you need to understand before you go in because you can see you know big losses in a very short period of time that you may have to hold through to kind of come out the other side to, before the profitability shows up
0: yeah. And let's talk about you know, the segment of the market that probably has suffered the most from that cyclicality, and that's the solar you know, panel makers and those manufacturers. You know, earlier this year, we saw President Trump put in place a 30% tariff on imported solar panels. However, even in spite of that, you know, taking a lot of this imported supply, uh, maybe, maybe making it uh, you know more expensive. We've still seen solar panel prices decline significantly over this past year as demand has fallen. Do you want to talk a little bit about what what's gone on with that over the past year or so?
1: Yeah. So, so initially, the the idea, <clears throat> at least in theory, the way it was presented was that the idea behind the panel <clears throat> tariffs that were put in was that it was supposed to create incentive to bring solar manufacturing to the U.S. And uh, frankly, that hasn't happened. I think um, th- there were a few projects that were announced. And I know that um, First Solar is, is, is making a big expansion, but they're expanding a facility that they were already doing some domestic manufacturing. Ironically, their solar panels are excluded from the tariffs anyway because they, their thin film technology they use is not the same um, uh, monocrystalline, multicrystalline technology that's kind of where the, where the tariffs are. Um, I think uh, Hanwha Q cells announced a big plant in Florida that was supposed to add like, 1,000 it was like a thousand jobs is like gonna be a huge deal and I think after multiple revisions what they're saying now is it's going to create like 50 or 100 jobs and it's going to be completely assembly so they're taking panels that are still being <clears throat> or they're taking cells that are still being manufactured overseas shipping them into the United States and assembling them into panels um, So frankly the tariffs just haven't generated, anything like the, the, what was purported to be the, the, the job creation and the, and, the, and the bringing solar panel manufacturing to the U.S. Now, a couple reasons why that's happened. Probably the biggest short-term reason is the U.S. announced these tariffs early in the year, close to the middle of the year. Uh, China made some substantial difference, uh, changes to its domestic distributed solar policy. Which absolutely cratered demand. It's just absolutely cratered demand uh, for panels, and panel prices have just plummeted since then because you have this massive overcapacity. So it's like oil, right? So OPEC has announced this cut of oil because there's too much oil. So the idea is that 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 should you know restore some supply and demand, essentially overnight. The, we had a massive oversupply of solar panels. Solar panels prices in the U.S. have actually fallen more than the amount of the tariffs because of this massive cut in China's domestic um, <clears throat> uh, program to add uh, distributed solar. Um, so you could you could actually buy solar panels in the U.S. today for your house, theoretically, for cheaper than you could have a year ago. So yeah, so that, so that's kind of where we are. And the end, the end result is you think about um, uh, an industry that's already a fairly a uh, um, a commodity product. You know, companies like Canadian Solar, um, Jinko Solar, who are two of the you know by by revenue, two of the biggest solar panel manufacturers, and the vast majority of their manufacturing happens in in Southeast Asia. They sell a a commodity panel; it's a low efficiency panel, and they and they kind of lead on price. And uh, they've had to slash their prices because because demand has evaporated in 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 China.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a funny coincidence. You know, the U.S. comes out with a thirty percent tariff, and then magically demand plummets to where it doesn't affect China in in, in a (laughs) uh, in a meaningful way. I I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. Um, (laughs) Let's. Let's talk about two. You know, you mentioned you know First Solar getting an exclusion uh, from tariffs as a result of their technology being a little bit a little bit more unique uh, relative to the to the commodity panel makers. Can you talk right. a little bit about the kind of dynamic between the the tech focused? Kind of cutting edge panel manufacturers versus what you're seeing from from some of the more commodity focused manufacturers like Jinko Solar and kind of what investors should think about when deciding where they should allocate their cash between those two kind of broad categories of panel makers.
1: Yeah, I think I think so. There's really there's kind of there's really three legs to the stool, so to speak. You know, you have the companies that are focusing more on the on the commodity. They're really focusing on driving down their cost per watt as much as they can. And essentially, what that so you have two panels. Uh, they're the same size physically. Uh, their power production um, uh, qualities can be very, very different, right? So let's say for example, you have a sun power panel. Sun power makes some of the most efficient panels that generate per you know square inch of space that generate you know, you know the most most uh, electricity uh, in terms of output on the backside. Now, and you and you take a Canadian solar panel or a Jinko solar panel, um, they may only be operating at 16 or 17 percent efficiency. So you think about the difference between 16 percent efficiency and 21 percent. So that's that 21 percent of panel uh, actually generates, you know, uh, about 20 to 24 percent more electricity. So that same size, you're getting a quarter more power from the same size, right? So when you're actually Pricing them out, you look at the cost per watt, which normalizes based on actually how much power you're getting from it, right? So companies like First Solar, uh, which makes the thin film panels, which really work really well in temperature variations like high heat or colder areas, they tend to produce a more consistent amount of power. Um, and then some power, which is just super high efficiency. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the commodity panel manufacturers. The idea, what you have to look at with with these companies, is look at their cost per watt. How much does it cost them to manufacture a a panel on a per wattage basis? So you, when you're looking at them, that's as an investor, that's something you really want to understand about their business. Now, the next part of it is you want to think about balance sheet management because the demand. This is an, ex, an excellent year. Demand can can shift substantially. You know, from one year to the next, um, you have to look at how Financially, well-built is the company in terms of being able to ride that out. I think a good good way to look at it on the best-case scenario is definitely for solar. This is a company that has something like $2 billion in cash, a little over $2 billion in cash on its balance sheet right now. We're heading into 2019, which is not expected to be a particularly good year for the solar industry. Um, It's going to be a little more stable than 2018, but it's not going to be a particularly booming year. First Solar is going to invest somewhere between $650 million and $750 million in adding to its manufacturing capacity to its Series 6 panels, which are its newest, most efficient panels. And It's still going to generate roughly $300 million in uh, positive cash flows uh, over over what's going to be a bad year, and it's going to be making substantial investments. Most of its competitors are going to spend 2019 just just trying to make it through. You know, you're not going to see them being able to make these big investments because most of these companies don't carry anything like the amounts of cash that uh, First Solar has, and they also tend to carry substantially more debt as a, as a as a portion of their of their total net value. Uh, so that's that's the reason for me. Sun SunPower, when it comes to investing in a panel maker. SunPower is one that is always at the top of my list. I think if you look at how much its stock price has fallen this year, I think now is a great time to be uh, to be looking at to be looking closely at SunPower.
0: So, so SunPower, uh, is that not not First Solar would be it would be your, what you'd be much. I'm
1: watching? sorry, I'm sorry. I'm I was looking at SunPower on my screen. Uh, <laughs> First Solar, thank you for catching that. Yeah, First Solar is is at absolutely at the top of my list. And generally always stays there. And I I think, especially at the the value, uh, at the price it's at right now, I think it represents a pretty good value.
0: Yeah. It it sounds like, you know, it's very similar to what we talked to our listeners about with, with, you know, oil and natural gas businesses, and that you really need to have a strong balance sheet to be able to ride what goes on in the cycle and be able to make investments, you know, not uh, not whenever it works for you, but just whenever the market justifies it. Um, Yeah.
1: I think actually probably the best the best industry to compare it to in terms of the cyclicality is the steel industry. You think about steelmakers, it's an industry that the the shifts in demand can be very sudden and can be very large, but these are very capital intensive businesses with high fixed costs. And you can quickly swing from losses to profits in a very short period of time. So I think a company we've talked about before, I think f- you, first solar is kind of like the new core. Of the uh, of the of the solar industry, it doesn't pay a dividend. It's a newer company, but I think in terms of that balance sheet, manufa- um, a management that does a really good job of allocating capital. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's I think that's that's the good comparison for me.
0: All right, Jason, let's move on into the installers, and and we mentioned a little bit with, with the the falling demand out of China that that we've seen panel prices uh, really fall in a significant way, enough to even make up. Of the thirty percent tariff uh, that was put in place earlier this year, and so in a year that looked like you know when the fit tariffs first dropped, it might it might be a tough times to be a panel manufacturer as your input costs rise and it's more expensive for folks to hire you to install solar on their homes. It's actually turned out to be it be not uh, not that bad of a year for them. What do you what are you thinking about uh, about this space with the installers uh, this year?
1: Yeah, it's been it's been surprisingly good. It really has, and and I'll tell you, a year ago um, I was pretty negative on. Uh, companies like Sunrun, Vivint Solar, um, those are the two largest uh, kind of pure play, uh, publicly traded um, solar installers. Um, I was pretty negative on them because of the, the the looming tariffs and how that was likely to impact um, demand uh, domestically. Um, but I will tell you, especially for for Vivint, it's been a good. I think the stock is still up, you know, something like double over the past year, um, which is which is really really good. Uh, the company's also built up a pretty good. Um, uh, book of 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 recurring revenues that it that it that it's going to own. Um, so let's talk. I'll talk real quickly about kind of how they these companies work and how they make a living, right? Uh, and essentially, they do two things: they sell you a solar system and install it, and they they make a profit on that sale, um, and then they can make recurring uh, income over time for maintenance and support and that sort of thing. Um, the other way that they make money is if if you don't want to buy. Um, or finance, um, you know, take out a loan to, to acquire a solar system. Uh, there are solar leases, and then there are PPAs, or power purchase agreements. These are long-term, like 20-, 25-year contracts. Um, <clears throat> and what happens with these is sol, uh, the, the solar installer, they maintain ownership uh, generally. Sometimes they sell it to a third party, but generally they maintain ownership of that asset, and it goes it goes on their books, and then they have a source of recurring revenue that they can make a living from over time. And I think Vivint Solar has something like eight dollars and ten cents per share in uh, in uh, on its books in present value of the long-term contracts that it that it holds. Now, the the the, the benefit for you as a consumer of doing one of these PPAs um, or or lease agreements is that you just get a fixed payment based on your whatever your usage is going to be and generally you you can reduce your your versus your energy bill because your your energy bill basically goes away you know you may pay a little bit uh, for to your electric utility uh, but you can save 20 25 30% off of what you would normally pay your utility you don't have to make a major financial outlay or take out a loan to buy the solar system um, and you know that that the the the, the uh, the installer is going to take care of maintenance, are going to take care of repairs, and, and keeping the system up and working. Um, but again, the benefit for them is that they can tip, typically these can be a little more profitable for them than just selling you a system. Um, so that's part of the trade too, is that you know they can make a little bit more money on these deals, and they can capture recurring cash flows for the for the length of that contract. Um, so that's so as an investor, if you're looking at these businesses, you want to understand what is their mix of business. Can they sell systems profitably, and can they profitably do these solar leases and PPA agreements? Especially as interest rates are going up, that's going to put a little bit of a squeeze on them to continue making the same kind of margins, because they have to t- you know, they have to get money to pay for those systems still, and so that's typically debt that they take out. Um, so you kind of have to understand that.
0: Yeah, Jason. Uh, you know, I mentioned with Brian. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, residential solar panels. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago about you know the solar investment tax credit that's going to be rolling off after the end of 2019, and, and that's going to impact, of course, you know, demand from from individuals whether they want to install solar on their home, and may, maybe, maybe, uh, unless I'm mistaken, is going to is going to impact you know whether whether these these installers when they you know do these lease agreements can get that tax credit on their investment to purchase the panels. You know, how do you think looking out? You know, as that tax credit rolls off, of course, there's a chance that Congress could re-up it. Uh, you that's, know,
1: ha- that's already happened once, right? right. We saw that um, a couple of years ago when when it was set to expire and Congress extended it for a couple of years, and now it also kind of it doesn't just go away, right? I think there's a like a few years where it it, it drops down Stare a little down. bit each year, so that so that'll you know that'll play a role as well. Um, you know, I think there's a number of factors. Um, at, that are that are going to kind of come into play, um, that you know, it's it's hard to say. I, I think the reality is the industry is a lot healthier now. I think we've already seen a lot of consolidation. Um, we're going to see more consolidation over the next couple of years. Um, I think the where 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 those where those credits have a bigger impact is on the utility scale side, because in general, you know, these companies are are budgeting. You know, three years, five years out for some of these these types of investments, when they're looking to add capacity, uh, maybe they have a, a, a coal uh, power plant that's coming that's that's you know 40 years old that they're going to need to start replacing the, the the power that it produces, so they're starting to look at adding renewables to replace that capacity. Um, and if if they're setting their budget for investments they're going to make in 2020. And they're finalizing those budgets in 2019, and there's there's no clear path from Congress that, that they're going to increase or extend. They have to build their budgets based on what they know, right? So that's where this can have a bigger impact on forecasting demand, um, and this is what creates those big cyclical swings more than anything is the utility demand from year to year. So I think that's what we saw last time. When 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 uh, Congress extended the taxes, it happened so late in the budgeting cycle for the utilities that there wasn't like a lot of upside the next year that it happened. It was like a year later before we really saw it. But what we did see happen was a lot of companies pulled forward deals. Like uh, uh, First Solar, for example, they pulled a lot of business and Sun, uh, Sun Power as well. They pulled a lot of business forward because companies wanted to get it done before the tariffs expired. So. Maybe we see a little bit of a bump towards the end of next year, um, if if it looks like the tariffs are definitely going to not get renewed. If companies can find the money in their budgets to to do some of these uh, commercial or utility scale projects, that can really move the needle in terms of affecting affecting you know the the the, the big numbers for the for the panel makers. Um, but in terms of the for the for the residential guys uh, like your Sunruns and your Vivents, it's really it's really residential solar that moves the needle for them. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if the, I think they're they're built where they can ride out the changing economic environment as those with those tariffs set to or the uh, excuse me the incentives set to start declining, Um, and I think a good way to see that is that panel makers have have had to drop their prices thirty percent on average this year, and we're not hearing about a bunch of panel makers you know going out of business. So that's the big thing: the input cost for them. Is uh, is set to kind of continue through as as the as the incentives get changed?
0: Yeah, definitely something for for investors to watch. You know, in this next year in this space, let's go into into the solar component and accessory manufacturers, which to me is is something that it probably gets me the most excited. These are these are the folks they make. You know, inverters, as you mentioned off the top of the show, they make some panel mounting racks. But the really exciting stuff is it, it. in addition to the inverters is what's going on with the energy storage systems what you know if solar is going to be a larger and larger segment of our energy production over the long term we're going to have to find a way uh, to store some of that energy produced during the day when the sun is out for use use at night so what what are we seeing with these component manufacturers and what what is the what's really driving the story for these companies right now
1: so the the big needle moving thing right now is definitely the shift to module level power electronics uh, MLPE is is the is the acronym that you'll hear, and the idea is that uh, you you actually historically the way a solar system has 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 worked is you you get the panels on the roof, and then you have an inverter in your garage that converts the DC from the panels to AC from all of them, and sends it to the grid or sends it to into your house for your to to, you, to you, for you to consume. Now. The problem with that is it's a single point of failure. If the, if the inverter goes out, you are no longer getting any solar at all. Right? Those panels are just sitting up there on your roof, and they're just sitting there soaking up heat. So <clears throat> there's been a move to shift um, to uh, actually having inverters and power optimizers on each individual panel. Now, a couple things that this is going to do is it's going to, number one, if, if you have an inverter go out, It only affects the panel that's it's attached to, right? So you're still getting power production from the rest of your of your uh, system. Um, It can also, since since it's taking the power from each panel, it's more effective at managing. And you have power optimizers and also inverters on there, and they're managing the power. So, for example, if you've got a tree that shades part of your solar system for part of the day, and then it moves across, you get more efficient production because it's managing the power at each at the panel level. So it's just a much more efficient way to do it um, in terms of getting power output. So that could mean you have to have less panels to generate the same amount of power. Um, it's just a more efficient way to do it. Uh, and two companies that are really, really well positioned in this um, are SolarEdge and um, I just drew a complete In-phase. blank here. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. In phase. Thank you. phase and SolarEdge. They're two of the big kind of leaders in this. Um, so, but that's a big that's a big step change. Going to the multi level um, um, panel, uh, or the the sorry, the module level um, power electronics, because that's like electric code is calling for that change. Where, you know, beginning in about three weeks, it's January 1st, they're going to have to make this shift. They've already started to make the shift. And what's happened is SolarEdge and Enphase have started signing deals with supply, supply deals with the panel makers. So they're working directly with the panel makers with under long term contracts. So they have some stability in knowing what they can project for their for the revenues. Um, It gives them some some competitive edge, some protection. Um, And I think it's kind of a niche industry that I don't think you're really going to see the panel makers try to move into.
0: Yeah, it seems to be a little bit more consolidated than what we're seeing from the panel makers. A fewer players. So when we're talking about these shifts in supply and demand with a smaller number of operators, that. The potential for rationality is maybe a little bit less, um, and again, you know, as as solar becomes a bigger segment, you know, we're going to see more pushing into the the storage business. You know, Enphase is starting to roll that out. Tesla has has some operations there with their Powerwall, which they partner with. You know, we talked about a minute ago about installers with with their Solar City uh, part of their business. So, There's some big opportunities there. We we'll just want right. to call out too on the MLPE. Stuff. I mean, it, it does it, it get you a significant boost in efficiency. I think the Department of Energy said you can reduce energy losses just from partial shading uh, of your solar panels by t- uh, twenty to thirty-five percent. So that's really a significant bump up. In addition to there's there's some safety factors of, of if an individual panel fails, can start overheating. All these sorts of issues. You can cut off that individual panel while still getting some solar production from the rest of your rest of your uh, operation. So. So, uh, really, some exciting stuff going on there. It's an interesting industry uh, to follow.
1: Yeah, very much so. I think, and the ba- and the battery business is is really interesting. I think of, of the companies that are in this space, I'm I'm most excited about Enphase, and uh, I think I think you're you're a big fan of Enphase as well, if I'm not speaking out of turn. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning Tesla too, right? I think we should we should bring Tesla into this conversation because you know Tesla acquired Solar City. You know, a year and a half or so ago, uh, it's substantially backed down on its uh, focus of residential installations. Uh, it was the biggest residential installer in the U.S. by a wide margin, um, and it's just kind of gone way back on that. Uh, and it's more focusing on the manufacturing side now, right? They're working on the roof, the solar tiles uh, for, to, as, a, as an actual solar roof, um, and that's slowly starting to kind of roll out. Uh, on the industrial and the utility side in addition to the residential side the power wall that you talked about with their with their deal with Panasonic um, so they're definitely a big player in this um, I, I don't think you can invest in Tesla based on its solar business uh, because it's you know its auto business is still by far the the biggest part of it but it is an interesting part of, of, of Tesla's business to uh, to, to follow
0: it, it definitely is Jason and, and you know it Assuming they can get it all up and running, I mean there are some synergies between what they're doing on, on the solar side and what they're doing with the EV side. So I mean, if they can can never get everything firing on all cylinders, it really does seem like a compelling kind of synergy between those two parts of the business, and not run out of money in between now and then. Right. We, yeah, we mentioned riding the cyclicality kind of. and all those sorts of things. So um, let's talk about the, you know the last segment that we want to mention, which is these indep- independent power producers, the yield codes, as you mentioned off the top. Um, These these are similar traditional utilities, but they do own and operate some solar systems. Uh, We're not really seeing any yield codes that are pure plays right now. Most of these businesses have significant investments in in other types of renewable energy, whether that's wind, whether that's hydroelectric, things like that. You know, what are you seeing with the yield codes, and in in particular, are there any companies that stand out as particularly attractive to you? Yeah, I
1: think if if you go back a couple years ago, there there were there were a couple of like pure plays. Uh, SunPower and First Solar had you know 8.3, uh, which was their their combined yield co. I think the challenge is that um, if if you're a power producer, you really want to be flexible, right? You really want to be able to to invest where you're going to get the best cash, you know, cash on cash return you can capture. And solar isn't always that. So these businesses were really too limited if they were strictly solar focused. So. The, the ones that are, are, there's been a lot of consolidation, right? So you talk about companies that, that do a lot of things. Uh, Next Era Energy Partners is really interesting uh, because it's a, a big electric owner, um, owns a little bit of wind, and also owns a lot of natural gas distribution. Um, it's it's tied to Next Era Energy, the big utility that owns Florida uh, Power and Light. Um, so so it's really interesting, um, and, and I think it's 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 worth following closely because it's going to be adding a lot more renewables over time, especially a lot of solar. Um, Brookfield Renewable, the ma- majority of its of its uh, cash flows come from hydroelectric, uh, but it uh, so the, the whole Brookfield asset management family of companies, uh, Brookfield Renewable owns around two thirds of Terraform Power. Um, which is like a third solar, two thirds wind, uh, and it's a really interesting growth story um, that that Brookfield Renewable is using as a way to drive its growth in solar and and, and in wind. So I really like Brookfield Renewable a lot. It's like down like twenty five percent from its high close to the beginning of the year. Its yield is almost eight percent, which I think is an absolute steal. Um, and I also like um, Pattern Energy, which is. T- today, if you measure their, their all of their cash flows come from wind, uh, it is starting to uh, look closely at solar, and it will be making solar investments in the coming years. Um, I think this is that's more of the risk reward kind of play right now because it's 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 paying out a ton of cash flows to support its dividend, and the cash flows are starting to grow, so it's closing that gap. But there is a little more a little more risk right there. But basically, the way they make money is they invest in or they build these these big renewable projects. They find a utility. Uh, you, they know who's going to be buying their power usually before they even build these these, these projects out. Uh, but then they sell, you know, on ten year, twenty year contracts, uh, a power purchase agreement to sell that the power capacity, so they can pretty much project what their cash flows are going to be for the next decade based on what they already own. Uh, they take out debt generally at a relatively low cost over long fixed terms to finance those projects. And then the the spread of the cash flows that they generate, versus what their debt costs and their operating costs are, they generally just pay the rest out in, in dividends, uh, retaining a small amount to reinvest and grow the business. So, if you're looking for really good dividends and for dividend growth opportunities, that's what I really like about the Yield Codes, because that big 6,000% growth in in, um, in solar that you talked about, these are these are going to be a massive owner of a lot of that growth. So these companies are going to see their cash flows growing on a per share basis. They should grow pretty substantially over, over the next you know, twenty or thirty years. So these are really good dividend growth investments. Maybe my favorite part of solar to to invest in is uh is the Yulcos.
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if our listeners are maybe a little squeamish about, about the, these shifts in demand and volatility, this is a good way to get exposure to solar and renewables in general without maybe being quite as exposed to the roller coaster ride that you might see from some of these other businesses. Right, exactly, exactly. All right, let, let's, and, you know, I know we've been I mean, going for a good minute, but let's go and talk about some of the challenges that we've seen, that we're going to see in solar over time. And the first thing I want to call out, it's called the duck curve. And what the duck curve is, Traditionally, what we see uh, for with power generation is is that it's kind of it starts to tick up after the sun rises as folks go to work, reaches a peak, you know, so right kind of rises throughout the day while people are at work, and then reaches a peak right after folks go home, say six seven, folks are home making dinner, turn on turn on the air conditioning, all those sorts of things. What the duck curve is is that middle of the day where we start to see a, a surge a surge um, or an increase in energy demand when you. Once you get a certain amount of solar into your grid, you start to see demand from your traditional um, energy energy uh, sources, you know whether it, whether it's hydrocarbons or otherwise, to really start going down because the sun goes up during the day, you reach your peak of solar production, so you don't need to use the rest of your uh, you know another energy source. But where it becomes an issue is when the sun goes down and that solar power rolls off the grid, you really have to ramp up very quickly uh, your hydrocarbon or other Energy-producing sources to meet that demand, and so it, it, it's led to some some complications for for utilities navigating kind of had a shift between those demands, particularly with energy sources, say like coal, that are really difficult to bring on quickly intraday.
1: Right. Yeah, these baseload, especially coal, uh, but yeah, these baseload power generation facilities, these legacy facilities, were never intended. To, to be able to handle these really quick surges like that, right? That's just not they weren't really built to be able to do that. And this has been a this has been a major challenge. It really, really has. the The thing with the duck curve that's 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 interesting is that, and if you go back, really four or five years ago, when this first started really becoming a major concern, especially where I live here in California, where we have a massive amount of solar. Huge populations, so it's really like the perfect environment for something like the duck curve to happen and to be a problem. Uh, batteries weren't even really on the radar as a, as a, as a long-term solution, but the, the technology has improved uh, as global scale of, of manufacturing batteries has grown and the costs have come down. It's really become, you know, an interesting potential solution. I think you know, energy storage, great big batteries, as uh, Elon Musk has called it. Um, has an amazing amount of power to uh, to to fill this need. I think it's 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 gotten to a point now where you you have um, utilities that are even looking at using battery storage as a solution instead of building a peaker plant. So instead instead of building a small natural gas plant that can quickly surge to 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 meet those those quick peak demands, uh, bringing in a, a, ba- a battery storage system. That's capturing power even from, from uh, carbon sources. So maybe getting power from a, co- a coal plant that's charging batteries during the day, if that just happens to be your cheapest incremental source of electricity, and then using those batteries instead of a peaker natural gas plant to meet that surge demand, it's really interesting what we're what we're seeing. So think about battery storage. In the near term, it you may see battery storage getting rolled out that's not even connected to renewables. It may be connected in the short term to pulling power from a natural gas plant to meet those peak periods in demand. Over time, obviously, the long-term goal from a carbon uh, reduction perspective is to tie it into solar and tie it into wind, and capturing those resources that are, aren't on all the time to, 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 to meet those uh, surges in demand. So Watch the battery space really closely.
0: Yeah, the batteries are going to be very important to store that production we have during the day. And then, as you mentioned, you mentioned the peaker plants for natural gas. That's that's yep. one of those things where, where a, as that kind of gap filler fuel, natural gas really serves a, a good role there, because it's really easy to turn on and get production quickly and turn off and, and, and kind of turn your production off quickly. Whereas with yep. coal, really, it's not economic unless you run it 24-7. You could say the same for nuclear. So, it's really yep. bullish for both batteries and then for natural gas having a continued role in energy production over the long term
1: absolutely absolutely
0: yeah and then as, as we're kind of going away let's talk about some regulatory issues that we've seen so you mentioned living in California California is pushing heavily into solar uh, I think beginning in 2020 um uh-huh. every new home construction constructed in California will be required to have residential solar installed there so we're going to see a little bit I mean California's the most populous state in the country I mean one of the most uh, you know, populous. You know, just locations in the world, probably. Um, you know, by, by concentration of people. So that, it, it, this is going to be a significant increase in, in energy demand as those start to come online. What do you think about about that as as a potential you know new demand source going forward?
1: I think the thing that I'm really interested to see is you know who are going to be the winners in in that space. And and I think if you if you look, a lot of the top ten home builders. That operate in California already have partnerships with with some of the 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 installers and some of the panel makers. So I think kind of seeing how that plays out is going to be really interesting to see. Um, But I think in general, I think this is probably going to be one of those uh, rising tides that lifts all boats uh, to a certain extent, right? Um, You know, home building is a very another one of those really cyclical industries. Uh, So you know, we have to consider. You know, from one year to the next, you know how 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 demand is. I'd be really careful about about you know using this as a key piece for anybody's thesis for any company because I think at the end of the day, I think some of the biggest winners are probably going to be some of the local panel makers uh, simply because if if I'm building a uh, a, a, a hundred house uh, development, you know, my cheapest source for 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 panel insulation may be the guy that that operates in that tri-county area right that might be the best place for me to meet that to, you know meet that legal requirement. So I, I think we have to be careful about assuming anybody like Vivint Solar is going to be a big winner from this I don't that, that may not be the case right so I think that's where you got to be careful with using any of these anytime that there's a specific legislation or, or, or regulatory deal about baking it too heavily into your thesis because as we've seen other things can change that can completely blow it up in a, in a, in a, in a one- year period.
0: Sure, it's definitely something to watch. If other states start to follow California's lead, that, that definitely could be a bullish sign for the industry. but you know, not something to hang your entire investment thesis on, but something to be aware of. Uh, we have right. another kind of regulatory question from our, our, our listener, Brendan sent us an email at uh, industryfocus at He's asking about uh, House Bill 7173. It's the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Uh, what the bill is gonna do is put a price on carbon and distribute it to American households. Uh similar legislation that's been passed in Canada, it would kind of give a carbon dividend as a result of the fees they're charging there. You know, you he asked that now that now that we're seeing that a price on carbon appears to be getting closer, are there any investing takeaways or things to take note of in the energy space as a result of this bill and things like it? And are there any impacts from it with regards to the, the Green New Deal that has been discussed uh, over the past year? What are your thoughts on this piece of legislation, Jason, and what impact it may have. Uh, on energy, uh, particularly the solar energy.
1: So I think if, if you look out a decade from now, I think you know maybe it's more likely that we see some of these kind of carbon tax carbon incentive things uh, happen in the US that you're starting to see in Europe and, and recently in Canada. But I think just to be as blunt as possible, this is, uh, this is a non-starter. Uh, it's 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 not going to happen under um, the current uh, White House administration, and it's not going to happen with a split Congress. Um, I think uh, it's it's you know this is a lot of this is about uh, about uh, political points as we move towards 2020 and you know uh, the next presidential election. Uh, so I, I think just to be pragmatic uh, and and look at this as what it is, it's it's kind of political posturing to a certain extent. Whether or not it's it's good legislation, I don't I don't think we should really even get into that on the show. Uh, So for investors, it's it's almost it's just kind of noise in the background that's not even really worth thinking about in terms of the near term. In terms of investing in solar, you think about the typical supply side, demand side parts of the business. Think about the companies that have the best balance sheets to ride out those cyclical shifts. and then take a grain of salt with any projections about solar demand any one given year. Because there are other material regulatory things, as we saw with China and with the U.S. over 2018, that can change things in the blink of an eye. But I I don't think this is legislation that's even going to get to a vote uh, in the next two years.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Jason. If, if this becomes a big sticking point for 2020, and you know a candidate gets elected on, on the backing of this kind of program, maybe it will have a significant impact. But I, I think in the right. near term, you know, we're not going to see anything uh, uh, concrete uh, come out of this legislation. If um, it
1: were to get to a point where it was actually codified, um, obviously it would be a tailwind for any any carbon reducing, carbon neutral, solar, wind, any of those those power sources. It would be good. But I think we're so far politically away from it even being considered. It's it's don't I, I would I'm not even considering it as part of any thesis I have for any 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 renewal or renewable or carbon investment at this point.
0: Sure, Jason. And you know, just for our investors kind of going away, we, we mentioned, you know, in, in the panel space, Jason really likes first solar, their their strong balance sheet, their ability to kind of ride downturns in the cycle. On the yield co side, uh, Brookfield—it's really, I mean, just across anything in the infrastructure space, Brookfield really seems to be uh, just well positioned and really just able able to ride um, you know cycles and really really make strong investments. One thing to note with them is they are an MLP, so consult your tax advisor on how that may affect um, your tax liability. And then on on the component space, you know, really like what Enphase is doing with their inverters and, and things like that. So that's definitely a company to watch in that space and probably the space for me. Uh, in solar, that I'm most excited about. What do you think, Jason?
1: Yeah, I, I, I do. I do tend to agree. I think. I think as much as Enphase has, is, is, you know, just rocked it this year. It's still a you know a double for most investors that bought late last year, early you know early this year. Um, I, I do. I like you know huge catalysts with the with ML the MLPE as you were talking about, and also it's step into battery storage. I think is a smart move. It's going to give them some diversity, and it's 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 the right move. Um, the one thing I will say on Brookfield, it is like you said, it's a limited partnership. If you look at all of Brookfield's limited partnership uh, investing notes, they make a point to say that they don't pay UBTI, which is the thing that makes them bad for for um, for retirement accounts. But there's still the risk that that could change. So definitely, buyer beware. Definitely talk to your your tax expert before you uh, before you pull the trigger there. If you're if you're really concerned about that. Look at Terraform Power. It's it's a standard corporation, um, and it's now run by the Brookfield family. So it's 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 a good alternative if you are concerned about that limited partner tax risk in your retirement accounts.
0: Sure, yeah, it gets you that same you know trust that you can have in Brookfield's management, while also yep. getting you maybe a little bit overweight exposure into solar relative to the the Brookfield Renewable Core platform, as we mentioned, is majority. um, Hydroelectric. So, things to think about when you're looking at investing in the uh, solar uh, uh, yield co space. Right. All right. For our listeners, just a brief programming note. We have Christmas coming around the corner next week. So, the holidays are in full swing. So, we're going to be taking a step away from industry focus for the next two weeks. Uh, Next week, you'll hear our roundtable show with all the hosts of industry focus. Uh, where we came together to discuss the year that was in 2018 and what we need to watch going into 2019. Um, on January 3rd, you'll hear our 2019 Energy Trends Look Ahead show we recorded back in October with Jason, Matt Delalo, and Tyler Crowe during FullCon. Um, on January 10th, we're going to come back, Jason and I, and we're going to talk about all the things we got wrong on that show. And answer any Ooh, questions buddy. that, yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. Uh, so <laughs> listeners, tune in and uh, you know send us all the anger emails you want in that week beforehand, and we'll answer any questions that you have. If there's any other news that you want to cover or things you're looking at, uh, looking forward to in 2019. You'd like us to cover, we'll try to hit those on the show as well. You can send questions our way on Twitter at at MF Industry Focus. I'm at nws Gator on Twitter if you want to get in touch with me, um, and you can email us at industryfocus at fool.com. I want to wish everyone a happy, safe, and restful holiday season, and we'll be looking forward to talking to you again in the new year. Thanks for coming on, Jason, and uh, really enjoyed it! Thanks, Nick! Happy
1: holidays to you, buddy! Happy
0: holidays to everybody out there! Happy holidays to you, Jason! Uh, And for really all our listeners as well, hope you have a happy, safe, restful holiday! Um, As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on!